Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 1211 1st Avenue North on the 3rd floor. A few weeks ago, I was at the uh, Grand Prix party that we have every year here at the church, and there were a couple of people who were from New York, sort of native New Yorkers, and a couple of people who weren't, and they were having a conversation. And the conversation uh, sort of very quickly went down the road of what a lot of us who aren't New Yorkers ask people who have been in New York for a long time, right? Where were you on 9-11? Tell, tell me your 9-11 story. And, and most people who lived in New York City, uh, when that happened, they all have a different story. Oh, well, well I was in Midtown. I was, I was across the bridge. I hadn't come into work yet, or whatever else the story may be. And so the, these people started to, to share their story. 9-11 is one of those events that, in and of itself, is not enormous, but it's an event that we sort of use as shorthand for something much, much larger. Right? This is the same way that Caesar crossing the Rubicon worked. Right? The Rubicon is a very small river, but when Caesar brought his army across this very small river, what he was doing was declaring war on the Roman government. He was saying, I've had enough, and whatever else Caesar wanted to say. Right? It's a small event that we attach a lot of significance to. Maybe it's a medium to large event that has even more significance than just the event itself. The same thing is true of the Boston Tea Party. Sometimes we use the Boston Tea Party to sort of stand in for the entire American Revolution. Or perhaps it's uh, the Jamaican bobsled team, right? All of these are small or you know, relatively not the biggest events, but they come to stand for something so much larger. This week we are going to look at the phrase in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And so on the one hand, we see this event and we can talk about it as history. Uh, most people, with very, very few exceptions, nobody denies that there was a teacher from the region of Nazareth, or the region of Galilee, in the early first century, who was crucified by the Romans. Most people believe that Jesus existed. In fact, there are historians, one Jewish historian, his name was Josephus, another Roman historian named Tacitus. Both of these guys sort of mention in passing, oh yeah, there was this Jesus guy, and there have been a lot of people talking about him in the past 20, 30 years, and sort of move on. But they acknowledge his existence. When we look at the crucifixion, though, we're not just looking at the history. We're not just looking at the bare facts of Jesus' death. It's something that stands for so much more. It's something that's not just about that moment in time, but it's about so much more. And so the question is not, was Jesus crucified? The question is, what does that mean? When we say that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, what is it exactly that we mean? 
this morning, uh, we've already sort of sung a number of songs that have alluded to this meaning, and we've already looked at one verse from Isaiah chapter 53. But what I want to do is, as we consider this question, what is the meaning of the crucifixion? What is the meaning of the fact that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried? What is the significance to that? And so I want to read Isaiah 53. We're going to start in verse 3 and read down to the end of the chapter. So if you would, stand with me. Uh, We do this out of reverence and respect for God's Word. And I'll read. You can follow along either in your Bible, on a Bible app, or we have the words there on the screens. This is the significance that the Bible gives to the crucifixion of Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him as stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. City Church, this is the word of God, written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. This poem, this song that we just read was written about 700 years before Jesus was born. And yet it vividly describes what the crucifixion was all about. And as we sort of marched our way through those verses, something begins to happen to us. The thing that becomes to, begins to happen as we sort of look at some of the words that were used to describe the crucifixion of Jesus is that we get uncomfortable. Because it's easy for us to sort of take the crucifixion and go, yes, Jesus died for my sins, and sort of quickly move on from that. But when we read this poem, when we read the accounts of Jesus' crucifixion, when we read things like, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, 
very quickly, we get antsy. We become squirmy when we start to think about the crucifixion. Because we don't want to take a hard look at the crucifixion. Because the crucifixion is in many ways a critique of who we are. And so what I want to do this morning is push into that discomfort. I want to sort of lean into the awkwardness of talking about the crucifixion of Jesus and seeing what it was all about. And the first thing that I want to point out as we sort of step into this awkwardness is the fact that the crucifixion was subversive. When you think of a leader, what comes to mind? When you sort of begin to go, who are the great leaders of time? Who do you think of? I know for me, I think of people like Winston Churchill, right? Sort of the English prime minister. I think that's what he was. My history's not great. Who led England in the midst of World War II. I think of Julius Caesar, who sort of led the Roman Empire and took it over. Of Alexander the Great, who conquered the known world by his young birthday, right? I think of these sort of great leader men. And yet, when the Bible begins to talk about Jesus' crucifixion, it talks about him in terms of a lamb and a sheep. That Jesus, in the midst of his crucifixion, did not lash out in power, which he could have, but instead was like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. It's easy for you to say. And like a lamb being led to the slaughter. There's an old, old hymn that says he never said a mumbling word. And when we think about the picture of the leader of a religion, who, who that religion claims to be the very son of God, God himself says, let me give you a picture of what God is like. He silently goes away to his own execution. Join us. See, this is very counterintuitive. We want our leaders to be the sort of leaders who take charge, who grab a hold of things, who are always in control of the situation and always on top and in charge. And then we have Jesus, the Lamb of God. And we have Christians who don't just sort of go, yeah, that was one part of it. No, no, no. At the very heart of the creed of what it means to be a Christian is that Jesus suffered. This is a picture of who God is. And it's a picture that absolutely contrasts with everything that we think of and know. Because so much of what we think about when we think about a leader, when we think about somebody who is in charge, when we think about any of those things, we think about somebody who takes power. Whether that's Churchill or Caesar, or Alexander the Great, or Steve Jobs, or whoever you want to fill in with that sort of archetype leader in your mind. It's someone who takes charge and takes power. And yet the very message of the cross, the very message of Christianity, is that Jesus lays down his life. He gives up power and engages in sacrifice. 
This is counterintuitive. And so as we begin to think about what the crucifixion meant, we see that it is an act of sacrifice. Unexpected. It's interesting um, that this idea of God coming down, of God enduring sacrifice, uh, is answers also people's greatest question about Christianity today. Uh, Fifty years ago, when people thought about Christianity, one of the things that was easy for them to think about is, well, well, how do I deal with my guilt? This was a question that religion was being asked. How does Christianity deal with my guilt? How does Islam deal with my guilt? How does Buddhism deal with this feeling inside of me? But that question is not as common anymore. In our culture, we don't have a huge sense of guilt. We have it. Uh, We don't talk about it as much anymore, and we've sort of brushed it to the side. The question that's asked of you and of me most frequently is this. How could God exist and all of this suffering exist? If there's a God, why was there an Auschwitz? If, If God really existed How can you account for and fill in the blank with some sort of suffering? It's interesting that the way that the Bible addresses this is by pointing us to Jesus. Because what's unique about Jesus in the face of every other religion is that Jesus is the God who steps out of heaven and enters into our suffering. I was talking to someone this morning and they were talking about that one of those days where you sort of wake up in a funk. Where, where sort of just that, that black cloud, that sort of Linus cloud is over the top of you. You, can't, you don't know why. You don't know why it's there. You don't know why you feel this way. But you just sort of have this... <clears throat> Jesus doesn't stand on the sidelines and go, fix it. Jesus came to earth and dealt with all of the things we dealt with. Our God is a God who does not stand apart from suffering, but enters into it. And the crucifixion was that suffering in a huge way. Crucifixion, for us, we associate now mostly with Christianity. When you think of crucifixion, you think of Jesus and Christianity. Uh, But in the time that Jesus lived, that was not what it was associated with. It was a form of punishment that the Romans didn't invent, but the Romans had perfected. Crucifixion was cruel torture. Even the word crucifixion sort of still bleeds out into some of our language, right? And so um, the word excruciating is from the same word as crucifixion. For those of you who are Harry Potter fans, the torturing curse in Harry Potter comes from a Latin word, and it's cruciatus. It's, it's crucifixion. Because crucifixion was, and probably remains to this day, one of the most sadistic and effective torture devices ever created. The Romans had it down so well that they could crucify someone without breaking a single bone in their body. And so as you were nailed to this cross, you were subjected to pain, to suffering, and to shame. 
the Romans typically reserved crucifixion for anybody who was an insurrectionist. They didn't sort of just crucify common thieves. They crucified people who were a threat or a perceived threat or who wanted to be a threat to the Roman government. This was Rome saying, this is what happens when you mess with Rome. This was the way that Rome said, you mess with the bull, you get the horns. Right? That sort of over-the-top threat is what crucifixion was. It was meant to deter anyone else from daring to stand against Caesar. And so when they nailed you to the cross, they typically flogged you beforehand. And so as you hung there on the cross, sometimes for days, you would slowly begin to bleed and bleed and bleed. But the way that crucifixion crucifixion worked was that you didn't typically die from blood loss. Most of the time, you ran out of strength to pull yourself up to take a breath. And so basically, you drowned on the cross. I, I say this, I go into this detail, I, I talk about these uncomfortable things about the details of crucifixion because we need to be reminded that Jesus really did suffer. That his suffering was real and it was physical. It's interesting as we talk about his suffering that the creed says he suffered under Pontius Pilate. And in one way that ties our salvation to a particular moment in time. But what some people have done is tried to say, ah, that's, that's so that we can blame Pontius Pilate. Right? That's so we know this is whose fault it is. Right? The bad guy, that's the bad guy in the story. Pontius Pilate is the reason Jesus was crucified. Or other people through time have said, no, 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 it was the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders were the reason that Jesus was crucified. Or it was the crowds that were gathered there that were screaming, crucify him. And any time we try to look at his suffering, our gut reflex is to, to blame someone else. Our gut reflex is to go, man, Pilate was a terrible person for doing this. And any time that our reflex is to deflect and say, Somebody else is bad for the crucifixion. We're missing the point entirely. Because as we read Isaiah, as we read Paul, as we read Peter, one of the things that comes out is the fact that the people who crucified Jesus were you and were me. That ultimately, it wasn't the Jewish leaders, it wasn't the crowds in Jerusalem, it was not Pontius Pilate who sent Jesus to the cross. It was us. It was your sins and mine. And this is difficult for us because we like to graze over our sins. We like to sort of brush them off and go, well, well my, my sins aren't that bad. So... <clears throat> So I looked too long at that girl in the coffee shop. So I, was, so I was unkind to that waitress. You know what? You know, so I had too much to drink, but it was Friday night. It was happy hour, right? And we sort of, we make these excuses. You know, it, my sins aren't that bad. You know what? So I, so I really wanted to get that car. 
And that was what I aimed my life after. Whatever it is that we sort of look at our sins and go, well, it's not, it's not that bad, right? I'm not, like, I'm, not like one of, I'm not like one of those people. When we find a category of sin that we probably will never commit and we go, those are the really bad people. I'm not one of them. We're good, right? So this, is, this is why in our arguments we like to punt to genocide. Because very few of us in this room will probably ever commit genocide. Just even the thought of that is sort of humorous, right? No, nobody in this room is probably ever going to have the power to commit genocide. And so we like to go, those people are bad, and I'm okay because I don't do that. We do this with all sorts of other sins, but that's for another sermon. And when we do that, what we fail to realize is that even the smallest of our sins, even the whitest of our lies, are cosmic treason. See, because even down to the motives of our heart, any time that our heart's affections are set on things that are not what we were made to be, are not what Jesus has called us to be, even at the level of our affections, any time we stray to the left or the right of what God has called us to be, we're sinning against a holy God whose holiness is infinite. And so when we look at the suffering of Jesus, what we see is that it's suffering that you and I deserved. Which is why there's real beauty in Isaiah when again and again and again he says, He was pierced for our transgressions. Our chastisement was laid upon Him. So not only do we see in the cross that it is subversive, that it is laying down power, not only do we see that the cross was suffering, real suffering of Jesus, but we also see that it was really a substitution. It was really one for one. This is, you know how this works in, in all of the sports, right? You can't have too many men on the field. You can't have too many men on the court. So what do they do? They blow that horn on the basketball court, and one guy trots off to the side, and another guy trots in. What happens after every play in the football stadium, right? One, two, three players, however many it is, goes off on the side. The other players come in. Soccer, they hold up that sign with the fancy numbers that nobody besides real soccer fans knows what it means. And they swap them out, right? Substitution. The cross was the same thing. The cross was God saying, I have this wrath for the ways that people at City Church, people in St. Petersburg, people around the world, for the ways that they have sinned against me, I have this wrath stored up. And Jesus tags us out and goes in and takes that wrath on himself. So that the cross wasn't just Jesus dying so that he could say that he suffered. It wasn't just dying so that he could do something. The death of Jesus was actual one-for-one substitution. It was physical and spiritual pain. To put it another way, Jesus went through hell on the cross in the most literal sense because he was taking all of the hell that you deserved. All of the hell that I deserved. 
you know, one of the things we say a lot here at City Church is that we're broken, messed up, accepted, and forgiven. Right? This is something we constantly come back to. And I love it. But I think one of the things that's easy for us to do is that we like to get, we, we like to kind of go, okay, yeah, we're broken and messed up. And I like the part about being accepted and forgiven. But we forget that it is the cross of Jesus that is the crux between those two things. Your brokenness and mine. The ways that we are messed up more than we want to admit cost Jesus his life. Put him through hell. That's why we can be accepted and forgiven. But what we want to do is we so often want to sort of brush our sins away and say, well, you know, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, yeah, but I'm, I'm accepted and forgiven. And we want to sort of rush to that. So as we reflect on the fact that Jesus suffered and died and was buried, it should lead us to a couple things. For some of us, this should lead us to sorrow. For some of us, we should sort of look at this and go, you know, I need, I need to be more circumspect. I need to realize the gravity of my actions more often than I do. For others of us, the gravity of our actions uh, haunt us. We do not need to be reminded how bad we are because our hearts accuse us every day. We wake up and are reminded of all the things that we have done wrong. And so while some of us need to look at our sin a little bit harder and see what Jesus has done, others of us need to look at Jesus a little bit harder and be reminded that his forgiveness is full and free. That he was crushed for our iniquities, but is crushed no more. And so some of us should be moved to sorrow. Others of us should be moved to worship. So this morning, this part of the Apostles' Creed is a call to us. For some of us, it's a call to believe for the first time. To say, I have never really dealt with what I've done in my life. It's a time that I need to believe for the first time. Others of us need to reflect on the ways that we brush aside our sins and go, that's no big deal. Other people do worse. Yes, but I'm forgiven. I can move on. We need to reflect on what the cross meant. But what all of us need to do as we reflect on Jesus giving up his power is to worship him. Because his forgiveness is great. While your sin cost Jesus his life, he did so willingly and he did so for the joy that is being with you that is set before him. So no matter how loud the voices are that accuse you, no matter how deep the hole is, no matter how bad the darkness is, Jesus says, I love you. I've forgiven you. Let's pray.